0: Joshua chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nath-ahothdor on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzbah, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom, and fell upon them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Zidon and Mishveroth Maim, and eastwards as far as the valley of Mitzbah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord had said to him, He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would reach us by your word. For your word is life to us. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would stir faith in us. That we would trust you more today than we did yesterday. And more tomorrow than today. Help us, O Lord, to glorify you in all that we do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let me ask you a question this evening. Do you fear the world? As you turn on your television screens or read your newspaper and see and hear the things that are going on in the world, does it make you afraid? Do you wonder about the power of the world and its ability to manipulate governments, to manipulate culture, to change laws, to persecute the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? And do you wonder how you'll make it from one week to the next, from one year to the next? This is something that has been more and more in the forefront of the minds of the followers of Jesus in just the last decade or so. We become more and more aware of the power of the world. We see stories of Christians being persecuted, not just legally, but actually killed, especially abroad. Christians who are tortured and murdered, their homes burned to the ground. And we wonder how the church can resist such a powerful world. Well, this evening, as we look at these two chapters in the book of Joshua, I hope that we will gain a reassurance that what the Bible teaches us is not the power of the world, but the powerlessness of the world. That in the face of God and His mission, the world is powerless. So let's begin then by looking at Joshua chapter 11, and look first at what it means for us as followers of Jesus to look to God, not to the world. This comes up at the very beginning of chapter 11. We see the next in a series of opponents for Joshua. The first five verses describe the next set of opponents that Joshua has. Now, if you've been following along with us, this should start to be Repetitive to you. Joshua had to face Jericho in chapter 6. And then there were the five Amorite kings in chapter 10. And then there was all of the south of Canaan at the end of chapter 10. The entire southern campaign that he had to conduct. And now we hear of yet another opposition in the north. But at the same time, we should be expecting this. Because we know that Joshua and Israel have to conquer the whole of the land, not just a part of it. And we know that the enemy is not just going to give up. But it does seem to be dragging on a bit, doesn't it? It's like we feel when we come up against resistance after resistance, criticism after criticism. We want to say to ourselves, can't we just get past all of this? When's the time when we can rest and know we're safe? When can we get away from the battle? But you see, instead of rest and peace, we get a detailed description of the enemy and his power. Now, I mentioned to you that we're covering a lot of ground, and in that sense, the author of Joshua doesn't help us. Because you see, he could have described the enemy in one short sentence. The kings came together and they camped at this certain place. Instead, he gives us five long verses describing the enemy, who they are, what their power is, where they come from, and where they gather. Now, isn't this book long enough already? Couldn't the author give us a break and just shorten up his description? But instead, we get all of these details and they're fearsome details. The enemy isn't just an army, it's a great horde. They're not just many, they are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They have horses and chariots in abundance. Now, you have to understand that to the mind of people in the day of Joshua, that's like saying they have tanks and fighter planes. These are the most... ...successful weapons of the militaries of the day. And so we are to see that the opposition is no easy matter for Joshua. They are the ones who have the numbers. They are the ones who have the technology. We're not used to seeing this. If we think about warfare within our structure... ...we could understand being outnumbered. That happens to us as Americans. But we don't mind being outnumbered because we have the technology... They may have more soldiers, but we've got the smart bombs. They may have more troops, but we've got the Green Berets. But here, what Joshua is facing is an enemy that is numerous, powerful, and technologically advanced. But this is all a setup, as it were. To help us, as we see God, to see how strong he is. You see, we do ourselves no favor by trying to limit the power of the opposition, by downplaying it. We would be better off instead looking to the Lord and seeing that He is more powerful than any opposition that comes against us. God is stronger. And then we are introduced to the sufficiency of God's help. There's this familiar refrain that comes again. You should almost be able to say it in your sleep. Look at verse 6. Do not be afraid, God says again to Joshua. Now, I think we need to put that into our mind's eye. When I first think of Joshua, I think of a tall, strapping soldier in armor who is fearless and ready to defeat the enemy. But I'm not sure that description is accurate because God has to keep telling him over and over and over again not to be afraid. I think it's better to think that Joshua is more like I am. I like to think that I'm brave, but if I'm home in the middle of the night and I hear a noise that I shouldn't hear... I don't get excited about that. I get fearful. Joshua is a lot like me and you. He needs reassurance from God. And so what God does is, he again gives this familiar refrain, not to fear, and he gives very specific instructions as to what will happen. He says, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Now, think about how comforting that is. It's one thing for God to say generally, be of courage. But if he says, be of courage, for that medical test that you have tomorrow at 3 o'clock will turn out well. That's something that really eases our fears, doesn't it? God's very specific with Joshua. He meets him exactly at his need. He doesn't leave Joshua to wonder at all what is going to happen. He says, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. He tells him exactly how the battle is going to end up. Now I want you to notice again Joshua's reaction here to God's reassurance. We saw this once before in Joshua 10. We see it again. One Old Testament commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, puts it this way. We might have expected Joshua, upon hearing that God was in control and going to give him victory, to let go and let God. Okay, God, you're going to take care of it? Show me. I want to see it. But instead, what Joshua does is he grabs hold of the promise of God. He grabs hold of what God has declared, and he moves forward with great confidence. We might even say with recklessness. The promise of God brings about confidence in Joshua. It frees him to do what he knows must be done. He doesn't debate or delay. He attacks immediately these kings by the waters of Miram. Now, you need a little bit of a geography lesson here to help you understand why this is so brilliant. You see, Joshua seizes the moment and he attacks the enemy by the waters of Miram. And what we know is is that this was a gathering place for their troops. It was decidedly not a good place to fight with chariots. There was not much room to maneuver. They were gathering there, and they were going to go off into the plain to then attack Israel, to use the chariots at their full strength. But instead, Joshua turns the tables upon them. He's so confident because of what God has done, he looks to God and his power, and he does not focus upon the enemy and their so-called power. And he strikes immediately, and he gains exactly the victory that God said he would. In verse 8, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them. And Joshua did, just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, let's think about that verse for just a moment. Why would Joshua do that? Why would he hamstring the horses and burn the chariots? It kind of reminds me, have you ever been annoyed watching a movie where there's a fight between the good guy and the bad guy? And the good guy never seems to pick up the gun that the bad guy has dropped. He's got to fight him hand to hand. Why don't you just pick up the gun and use the gun? Why do you have to do things the hard way all the time? Why doesn't Joshua take these chariots and use them as ancient tanks, if you will, against the enemy. Some say it's because Israel didn't know how to use chariots. They didn't think they were worth anything, so they just burnt them up. But I don't think that's what's going on here. It seems to me that God is showing Israel something. What God is showing them is that they are not to trust in chariots or in horses, but they are to trust in God. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Psalm 20, verse 7 says. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Joshua looks to the Lord, not to the world. But then there's a second thing that we see that is going on here, and that is that God's ways are not our ways. There is another important thing for us to remember in all of this text and that there is a time lapse going on. As we read through this text, it seems short, this entire campaign that Joshua is conducting. We might even think it happens all in one summer. But that's actually not what's going on. It's not what God has promised. God actually promised to Moses and to Joshua, starting in Exodus 23, that he would not drive the people of the land out in one year, because if he did, wild beasts would come in and multiply. He said, little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. God's power works like that. Seven years go by in this conquest. Far more often than not, God's power works slow and steady rather than in flashes. Now what does that mean for the Israelites? What that means is day after day, they would have had to trust God. Day upon day, they would have had to follow God. And there is something to be said About persevering in the midst of the ordinary. Do you think about that in your own life? You see, as you follow the Lord, as you deal with difficulties and circumstances that are before you, in the midst of all of that, you've got to do things like brush your teeth, clean the bathroom, eat, wash the dishes. The everyday things of life are in the midst of the great struggles that we experience because that's how God works in our lives, slowly and steadily, rather than in fits and starts. But there's another question that I think that comes up to us that we would ask ourselves. Why did no one of the peoples try to make peace with Israel? Have you thought about that? Joshua burns Jericho to the ground. And he defeats the kings west or excuse me east of the Jordan. He defeats the kings in the south of Canaan. Why does not someone get the same idea that the Gibeonites get and say, "You know what? Maybe we should have some kind of a peace treaty with Joshua." Do you notice it over and over again? Even though Joshua is called to conquer the land, it's the Canaanites that are attacking. They're constantly coming after Joshua and Israel. Why is this? It's not as if they had to destroy Israel. It's not as if they had been thinking for generations about destroying Israel. Yet they're passionate about meeting Israel in battle over and over again. And I think the answer is that God's ways are not our ways and that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, the text actually gives us the answer. This was God's doing that they kept attacking Israel. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, God had hardened their hearts. This is what we refer to in the Bible as a judicial hardening. That is, God is bringing judgment upon these people's Remember, they had already been judged as guilty. That's what God tells Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. They are guilty. But he said their iniquity is not quite full. They have already been judged guilty. Now is the time of the execution. That's what God is bringing about. Now this can make us uncomfortable, can't it? Who is God not to give these people a second chance? But before we speak like that, we'd better stop and consider God's sovereignty. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you make an enemy of God, you are right to be afraid. We may not need to fear the world, but fear Him who has power to cast you body and soul into hell but then there is another turn that shows us the other side of the coin we see this in verse 21 and following we see that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God but there is no fear for those who are in God's hands who are a part of his people Joshua came at that time to cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Now, stop for a minute and ponder in your mind who these people are. Do you remember who the Anakim are? They're the giants. They're the reason Israel was afraid to go into the land 40 years ago. They said to to Moses and Joshua, we want no part of this promised land. We don't really care what God's given us. They're giants there, and we're afraid. But we might expect here some sort of epic battle between these giants and Joshua and Israel. One of these epic battles where Israel is just on the brink of losing and God saves them at the very last second. Isn't that how the films go? But what actually happens here is short and swift. Joshua defeats all of them in two verses. It's so fast it's over almost before it started, and their defeat is absolutely complete. Not one of them is left. And what we have here is a reminder to us that we are not to give in to our fears. We can only imagine that the fear of the Anakim had continued in Israel. You don't become that afraid of a people that you're wandering in the desert for 40 years and not tell your children. As you're shuffling around in the desert and it's hot and dry and your son says to you, Dad, why didn't we just go across the river into the land? Well, son, you have no idea what was over there. These giants. We never would have survived. They were fearsome. And then your son would grow up and his son would say to him, Dad, why are we shuffling around here in the desert? Oh, oh, Let me tell you what's on the other side of that river. Your grandfather told me about it. Fearsome giants, huge warriors, we wouldn't have stood a chance against them. This fear would not have been lessened in Israel, it would have grown. It would have grown into the stuff of legends. But now here, that fear is done away with, swiftly, because of the power of God. Now, in our lives, our fears are different than that, aren't they? But when we look at God, His sufficiency is the same for us as it was for Joshua. How different are the results when we are in God's hands because we have a relationship with Him? Without that relationship with the Lord, to fall into the hands of the Lord is a fearful thing of judgment and wrath. But if we know the Lord our God by faith, if we are reconciled to Him by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then to be in the hands of God is the safest place we could ever possibly be. Now finally, in conclusion, we turn quickly to chapter 12. It's a long chapter. It's a repetitive chapter. That's one reason we didn't read the whole text. It goes on over and over again describing Joshua defeating all of the kings of the land. Just because it's a bit long and just because it's repetitive doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to teach us. And what this chapter teaches us is a monument to God's faithfulness. And the first monument to God's faithfulness is that all of God's promises are yea and amen. The, The text shows us the sure nature of the Lord's promises. And what it begins with is a recount of the conquest east of Jordan. Now, this is intentional. This is the conquest that happened before Israel crossed the Jordan, before they got to Jericho. You may recall that there were tribes on the eastern side of Jordan, and Israel defeated them, and two and a half of the Israelite tribes said, you know, this looks like some pretty good land. We would like to live here if we could. We'll come across and help you fight, but when everything's done, this is where we want to live. And so... What our text is telling us is that Israel is not to forget what was done there. And it's a good reminder to us that God has no second-class people. Because it would have been easy for Israel to look at that portion of Israel that stayed on the other side of the river and say, well, you know, they're sort of Israelites. They live on the eastern side. They're really not full Israelites. But what God wants us to know and to remember is that his people are united. Next, we move on to the litany of this conquest that is described for us. And at first glance, it is monotonous. It describes each one of the kings that are defeated. And it's almost like you could picture in your mind's eye Joshua with a large tablet. This king one; That king One. Another king. One. And then at the end, he adds them all up and he says, in all 31 kings. That's a lot of ones. It's a lot of kings. It's a lot of repetition. But this monotony, what does it look like if we look at it in the big picture? In the big picture, what it means is every single thing that God had promised, he brought to pass. This was a promise that he'd brought to Joshua. That even before Joshua, he'd brought to Moses. That even before Moses, he had brought to Abraham. The commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, puts it this way. This is not as if it is a monotonous list. This is almost as if these are lyrics to a song. Describing the faithfulness of God in fulfilling each and every one of his promises. There is one final thing we can get from this list. And that is an opportunity to recount God's goodness. We are usually in the habit of thinking of God's goodness generally. And the problem with that is, is that it robs us of the blessings that He provides for us. You all know, and we've spoken about it again this evening, that we pray particularly. I want to encourage you to be thankful particularly. Because if we were to rehearse detail by detail all of the blessings that God has given to us, we would first and foremost see how dependent we are on God. Secondly, we would see how good God is to us. And thirdly, we would trust God to bless us in the future. This counting of the blessings and the fulfillment of the promises goes beyond the promised land. It goes beyond Joshua and Canaan. We should look forward to the final victory that comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. The final victory that He will bring when He returns, when He fulfills every promise that He has made to us in His word. When our minds and eyes are focused upon God and His promises, we're not caught up in the world. And we're not tempted to think that the world is more powerful than it is. When we look upon God, we see that He is the one who is sovereign and powerful. And that the world is really powerless. Let's pray. Lord our God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you bless us and encourage us through it. We pray, O Lord, that you would be with us as we spend the rest of our evening together. We pray that you would bless the food that has been prepared. We thank you for the hands who have prepared it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us sweet fellowship, that we would dwell upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would encourage each other manifoldly. This we ask. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. If you please stand for the Lord's blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.